Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Vantuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. This podcast is part three of our series on system safety. Safety doesn't happen by accidents. System safety comes of age. And uh, we are once again back with uh, Sonia Bott and Tony Zenga. This podcast uh, is done in conjunction with a feature article that will appear in the December issue of Railway Age. Good way to close out the year on um, uh, talking about safety. So part three, uh, we're going to be talking about identifying overlooked practices. So uh, Sonia and uh, Tony, welcome. Uh, welcome once again. It's great to have you. Um, Thank you. Um, so let's start with, uh, with Tony. Uh, Tony, what are the three often neglected or not fully understood aspects of system safety practices? Well, Bill, thanks for having us uh, on your show. Uh, and from our experience, the three often neglected aspects of system safety practices as a minimum are the integration or lack of system safety in the systems engineering lifecycle, designing for safety, and process-based safety performance management. By having these uh, technical aspects in place, a system safety practice can effectively achieve its potential. For example, the use of analysis modeling techniques, such as qualitative risk assessment, uh, fault tree analysis, or bowtie models only used to justify safety to stakeholders could bring a false sense of security unless all interfaces are evaluated and engineered mitigations uh, are validated and verified. So to add, uh, just like in a, in a workshop, every tool has a special application. Therefore, each analysis technique, when correctly applied, brings value to the overall system safety lifecycle. But you cannot only rely on the analysis technique to claim the absence of safety-related risks. And in addition, there are other common system safety myths, such as the idea that a certified system is a safe system, when in fact, certification deals with the system behavior as specified. Safety, however, deals with the system behavior under unsafe conditions. As in our last uh, podcast, we gave the example of the Boeing 737 MAX, which was a certified product. Another myth is the, uh, is the operator error uh, is the main cause of accidents. Well, this could be avoided if the system is designed with safety in mind, which mitigates human-machine interface weaknesses, or compliance to safety legislation or industry standards, which may result in safe systems. Unfortunately, standards or legislations do not cover safety-related mitigations in their entirety, especially when dealing with new technology. Uh, and the last myth is the idea that the system is tested and therefore it is safe. But that's not realistic, uh, since you cannot test for the absence of safety-related risks. Uh, that is, you don't know what you don't know, so how can you test for the absence of safety requirements? Sonia, your, uh, your thoughts on this. How does this play out? Yeah, so as you said, I, I'm going to look how this plays out. It's well established that finding 
safety related design flaws late in the life cycle are very expensive to fix. When design flaws are found, we often see arguments arising. Arguments on the validity of the design flaws or arguments trying to convince that they don't need fixing or arguments to put in a quick fix. However, the problem doesn't go away and you see it repeating over and over. Arguing only causes delay. And then when a fix is put in, it is typically more like a stop gap patch than what a real design solution should be in the first place. This can be avoided by using practices that kick in at the early stages and live throughout the systems engineering lifecycle by number one, integrating system safety practices into the systems engineering lifecycle, and by number two, designing for safety, and by number three, using process-based safety performance management. By addressing these three practices, costs of engineering for safety are considerably reduced while increasing safety effectiveness and outcomes. And naturally, rework, which is a form of waste, is decreased, which in turn compresses project schedules, lowers costs, and lowers risks on the project side, and it improves performance and responsiveness on the operational side. So what exactly is uh, system safety engineering? Hey, Tony, could you provide a, a definition of that? Sure, Bill, yeah. So by definition, system safety engineering uh, is a design philosophy and methodology used to prevent hazards by identifying and eliminating or controlling hazards. Uh, now, again, what are hazards? Well, uh, they are system states or conditions that together with a particular set of worst case environment conditions will lead to unsafe circumstances, incidents, or accidents. System safety engineering is tightly connected to the systems engineering lifecycle. So systems engineering is an interdisciplinary field of engineering and engineering management that focuses on how to design, integrate, and manage complex systems over the life cycles. So when system safety is connected or is in isolation uh, from the systems engineering life cycle, safety ends up being handled as a postmortem or backward-looking assurance activity. Then the domino effect kicks in and organizations get trapped into a vicious cycle of trying to manage the hazard. Sonia, uh, so uh, what are, talk about some differences or the rationale behind uh, system safety engineering, if you could. Sure. So I'm, just, I'm gonna emphasize what Tony say, says with the differences and rationales. So the premise of system safety is one of synergy. A whole is more than the sum of its parts. System safety requires a risk-based strategy that is centered on identifying and analyzing hazards and applying remedies using a systems-based approach. This differs from the traditional strategies that rely on the results of accident investigations or epidemiological analysis, such as the tracking of patterns. The system safety-based approach to safety 
requires the application of scientific, technical, and managerial skills to hazard identification, hazard analysis, and the elimination, control, or management of hazards throughout the life cycle of the system. The good news is that system safety engineering is a well-established discipline that continuously evolves its methods and tools. System safety has been around since the 1940s era, when it became evident that once both aircraft and weapon systems became more technologically advanced and more money was put into them, their accidents became less acceptable. Today, system safety is evolving to integrate artificial intelligence, AI, where the inherent stochastic and system design-based approaches allow us to address far more risks and manage uncertainty to much higher levels than the traditional deterministic and non-systems-based approaches. So this is more good news, as we can utilize and benefit from the power of system safety as it is today, plus system safety is the foundation for how safety evolves in the future with the use of AI. Thank you, Sonia. Now, Tony, there are seven components of developing a system safety program plan. Could you go through those? Sure, Bill, yeah. So to begin, <clears throat> when uh, rail systems are created, modified or expanded, stakeholders such as suppliers, integrators and operators need to deal with both the system being developed, that's the product system, and the system that does the developing, the product, the producing systems. So the product system is the product itself. And the producing system is the system that produces the system. It may sound a little bit complicated, so I'll give you a bit of a, an example. Okay. So, for example, the product is a train, and the producing system are structures that describe the product system, such as the train uh, requirements tree, uh, the train system architecture, drawings, schematics, databases, and, and program plans. For safety, this is referred to as a system safety program plan. Which, uh, which is the rule book that describes to all stakeholders how the safety program will be conducted from a managerial and technical perspective. So to build on that, the system safety program plan is done at the start of a program and it defines the product scope, the organizational responsibilities, the depth of the system safety hazard analysis, including software level of rigor, which is very, very important these days, uh, and resources. It describes a system safety organization integration with other program engineering and managerial activities. A side note here is that uh, it has been my experience that you can find vast uh, improvements uh, or opportunities to improve the program simply by reviewing the system safety program plan at the start of a project. The system safety program plan also needs to describe the system safety validation definition and verification program activities, the milestones and deliverables. Uh, that's the what, when, and how many. The plan needs to describe tools such as the hazard tracking system to document incidents, hazards, respective mitigations, and the system safety integration with the hardware, software, and verification program activities uh, and results. All of these elements constitute the hazard log. 
Uh, one more extremely important element, which forms part of the system safety program plan, is the definition of the program level related risks and their threshold levels. Uh, there are at least uh, three or more risk thresh threshold categories. Uh, they are acceptable, unacceptable, and undesirable. For simplicity, we will only discuss two risk categories, which are the acceptable risks, which is part of uh, the identified risk allowed to persist without further engineering or management action, and unacceptable risk. This is the risk which cannot be tolerated by the managing activity. Unacceptable risks uh, need to be either eliminated or controlled. However, making the unacceptable risk decision is very difficult and very delicate, uh, yet a necessary responsibility for the managing activity. Also, the decision is made with full knowledge that it is the user who's exposed to the risk. And I, I guess Sonia and I uh, are available to the listeners if they would like to discuss this very important point again. Okay. Uh, so Bill, uh, I spoke about the system safety program plan key structures, and now I would like to discuss the seven components or tasks that should be undertaken for an effective system safety engineering program. So the first step is to identify safety constraint requirements using a process model diagram consisting of human, controller, and hardware interface uh, safety feedback loop analysis. That will be followed by a safety assessment of the system operations and maintenance, also known as the operating and support hazard analysis. Uh, this activity is started after the approval of the system safety program plan and continues throughout the, the, the whole program. It is applied uh, it is applied to identify hazards that may arise during operations of a system and to recommend risk reduction alternatives or constraints that are applied during the operation to ensure safety related risks are controlled and eliminated. The next step is the system hazard, is the subsystem hazard analysis, which is started during the definition, design, and build program phases. This activity is used to identify hazards in subsystems of a larger major system. The activity evaluates functional failures or hazardous functions of the subsystem that may result in accidental loss. At the integration level is the system hazard analysis, which is started as soon as the preliminary subsystem hazards results become available. This activity examines the entire system for its state of safety. It integrates the essential output of the subsystem hazard analysis to focus on safety weaknesses in the total system design by analyzing the system interfaces, including safety critical human error activities or emissions. Similarly, the system of systems hazard analysis examines the entire system of systems for its state of safety. Going further in the design is the component level analysis, which provides a systematic evaluation of the components based on their failure modes and effects that they have at the subsystem or system level. For example, a door control or failure at the door system level and its effect on the integrated tray. Each failure mode is categorized in terms of safety or service affecting severity criticality on the system. For example, the system will be the train. Another essential task is the functional hazard analysis, which examines the system functions. 
to identify potential functional failures or functional behavior and classifies the hazards associated with specific functional outcomes of failures or anomalous conditions. Uh, as an example, uh, let, let's look at a landing gear on an aircraft. This task assesses if the landing gear is commanded to deploy too early or too late or fails to deploy entirely when the aircraft is required to land and what the end effects are from the safety perspective. Of course, the output from the functional hazard analysis are safety requirements, which will form part of the system when designed and assembled that prevents any bad outcomes from happening. Uh, the sixth step is the safety verification, which is done during the program testing phase. This task provides the necessary evidence through inspection, demonstration, and test results that the system comprising of its hardware, software, and human interaction complies to the system safety requirements performed under special safety testing. And the last step is the safety process, uh, which is known as a safety case, which is uh, a documented demonstration and due diligence provided by the organization to demonstrate that the completed system can operate within the risk safety margins as defined in the system, system safety program plan. Bill, Bill, one more important note to the listeners, although that, the, although that safety engineering would have done all of its work, uh, as I described, managing changes in the hardware, software, or operational procedures need to be assessed by safety before the system is allowed to operate. The changes could happen immediately after the system is delivered to the end user or after several months of its deployment. System safety must remain an integral part of the system. Okay, thank you, Tony. Um, Sonia, you uh, and Tony have talked about safety by design, but how can safety itself be designed? Well, it's during the time when new technologies or when solutions and features get added that you consider designing in safety. This is done upfront within the early design phases rather than the more common redesign work that's done well after the testing stage. We are preventing hazards by designing them out in the first place. So that's what I mean by safety by design. Now, we will use a tool called the design order of precedence. It is a framework with five levels and specifically for safety. The five levels deal with hazard control measures and range from the least effective to the most effective. Now, let's look at each of the five levels. At the very bottom, level one, is the least effective hazard control. Essentially, it is a problem for people to deal with, and it makes it so by incorporating signs, procedures, training, and personal protective equipment, PPE. Unfortunately, this is often considered the first line of defense, where really it should be the last resort. Level two is about adding technology that provides warning mechanisms, such as alarms and flashing lights. Level three is about adding a protective barrier between people and the hazard. A simple example would be the protective shield over a table saw blade. 
level four is about replacing a serious hazard with a lesser one. A simple example is using a transformer to reduce a fatal high voltage to a low voltage that is not fatal. At the very top, level five is eliminating the hazard completely. One example that comes to mind is replacing toxic cleaning solutions with environmentally friendly ones. Another example is replacing high volatile explosive fuels such as hydrogen with battery power. It doesn't change the operation. Well, Sonia, can you provide uh, some more detailed examples of what you just talked about? Sure, Bill. So I'll provide you some real life examples where we apply the design order of precedence. As our first example, let's look at the hazard of train overspeed derailment. The very lowest level of protection is giving the train crew speed-related bulletins, operating procedures, and posting signs on the track. The crew ends up being responsible for themselves and therefore prone to human error. The introduction of PTC, positive train control, raises the safety protection by providing speed warnings and other engineered features such as stopping the train if the speed warnings are not properly addressed. These would be levels two, three, and four design controls. As much as PTC reduces the overspeed risk, it does not fully eliminate the overspeed derailment hazard. Imagine the full elimination of this hazard with a solution that prevents trains from overspeeding in the first place. Trains are programmed to process events in real time to travel at safe speeds based on conditions of the track, weather, geography, and consist amongst others. In reality, this is an example of how safety has been approached by multiple generations of solutions dealing with trains over speeding. The industry paces through each level based on financial investment and technological support. Over time, the highest level of safety would be achieved. As another example, or second example, uh, let's consider electric trains docked at the maintenance shop and powered through a 750 volts DC facility connector. A hazard is that the train can move unintentionally. One consequence is that it collides with personnel, causing bodily harm or death. So once again, at the lowest level, providing signs, floor markings, and training the personnel to stay out of the way makes it their responsibility to be safe. The next level of protection would include adding motion sensors or laser trip sensors that trigger, trigger visual auditory warnings whenever personnel enter hazardous areas. Higher levels of protection address the hazard at the source, such as tethering the train to prevent it from moving, or reducing the power through electromechanical interlocks to disable train propulsion. In this example, we see that the most effective hazard control, 
adds no cost to a program when it is designed in upfront during the assessment and definition stages. However, it becomes very costly when addressed later in the systems engineering lifecycle, such as during testing or field operations. So while the best approach to every hazard is to eliminate it completely, this may not always be possible or even easy to do. Trade-offs may be necessary. Regardless, the levels of hazard controls identify where you are at in your safety solution. So essentially, safety by design is all about preventing hazards by designing them out in the first place. Well, here's another acronym, uh, which I'd like you to identify and how it's applied. KPI. What is KPI? Okay. So a KPI is a, KP, a key performance indicator. KPIs measure a company's success versus a set of targets, objectives, and industry peers. KPIs are typically financial, customer, and safety related. After all, a company must be good at making money, top line and bottom line, the financial KPI, attracting and retaining customers, the customer KPI, and operating safely, the safety KPI. KPIs are meant to be simple and just the vital few. They are simply indicators that are specifically designed to flag performance issues so that direct action can be taken. This means that KPIs must be defined top down with traceability from one process level to the next through a KPI tree. The top level KPIs are tied to the top level processes of the company. And when you work downward through the subprocess levels. If you have more than a handful of KPIs for a process area or level, then it's time to simplify. Focus on the vital few and not the trivial many. Now, it's really important that the KPIs must be explicitly attached to a process step at its respective process level where it is clear cut for where and when to take measurements and providing a clear starting point for working through investigations and interventions. So this means that if a KPI is not explicitly tied to a process step, then by definition, it is not a KPI. And this is a common mistake that organizations make with KPIs. The consequence is that more than necessary effort is spent investigating and addressing issues, otherwise known as waste in the lean world. And additional consequences include risks of making mistakes with understanding the messages in the data, gaming the system for vanity, and ultimately misleading the business, which would be more forms of waste and an exposure to safety. Now, to define and effectively use KPIs, a process architecture must be in place. Often process architecture is missing. This results in processes that are misaligned and poorly adaptable. 
which means their safety is in question, not to mention the amount of waste they perpetrate. And digitizing processes that are not properly architected is an exercise in futility. Instead, you must have process areas, processes, sub-processes, and detailed process flows all tied together in a process hierarchy. From there, the traceable KPI tree can be readily put in place from the top level through to the lower levels of the company. And any supporting technology solution and system must also be systematically tied into the process as well as the data flow. So what I've just talked about is the direct link between KPIs and processes. Next, I'll talk about how to be proactive using KPIs. In today's reality, many organizations only define outcome KPIs, where one needs to wait for the unfavorable outcome to occur before taking corrective action, thereby making the response a reactive one. The proactive and more effective and lower risk approach is to couple the outcome indicators, the outcome KPIs, with predictive ones, the predictive KPIs, so that any corrective action can take place well in advance and thwart the occurrence of the unfavorable outcome. And uh, keep in mind, both the predictive and outcome KPIs are tied to process steps. And we focus on the vital few. So when it comes to safety, using predictive KPIs tailored for safety can go a long way in addressing hazards without waiting for the hazards to occur. And uh, for our listeners who, uh, who were uh, in the military, and there are a lot of uh, military veterans in the rail industry, KPI is not to be confused with KP duty, which stands for kitchen police or kitchen patrol work uh, under the kitchen staff assigned to junior U.S. enlisted military personnel and was sometimes given as a punishment for a minor infraction, KP duty. But this is something <laughs> might be slightly related. Um, okay, uh, I had to get that in. Uh, so, Sonia, getting back to, and I'm going to say this correctly, industry 4.0. Why does it require system safety. So industry 4.0 takes automation and computerization into the future. Uh, industry 4.0 promises to completely revolutionize how work is done, not just improving productivity and efficiency by a little bit. Safety is embedded in every aspect and function of the railroad. For several decades, railroading has been filled with advances in mechanical, civil, chemical, and electrical engineering. Industry 4.0, which is in its early stages, introduces a greater need for advances in computer sciences and artificial intelligence, AI. Because of this, in the Industry 4.0 world, we need to ask questions such as, how do we know that these solutions and systems are safe and that there are no lurking issues? How do we know that the integration of multiple components from vendors, 
partners and even from within meet safety objectives? How do we know if safety integrity is preserved after a change is made? How do we shift the paradigm where safety moves from a cost center to a value-added business driver? And, of course, design and implement safe solutions in this new world. So system safety is the mechanism to answer these questions. The bottom line is system safety is no longer an option, especially when it comes to Industry 4.0. So, Bill, to add to what Sonia was uh, just mentioning, uh, is that system safety is required because of the multiple challenges ahead of us. We really need to get serious on this. So the world of yesterday's problems, they have not gone away, but continue to exist in contrasting a new context. As Sonia pointed out, Industry 4.0 offers entirely new challenges through increased complexity of daily operations. Smart technology embedded in systems has started to push the envelope between efficiency and safety. System safety, therefore, needs to be an integral part of the solution and a, rec and a recognized necessity for the industry. Tony, uh, what are your final thoughts uh, wrapping up this uh, podcast and wrapping up this, uh, this series on the all-important topic of system safety? Yes, Bill. So by embracing a holistic system safety program, railroads can shift safety from a business cost center to a value-added business driver. A place to start is by focusing on often overlooked or, poor, or poorly understood key practices, such as integration into systems engineering lifecycle, designing for safety, and process-based safety performance management. Starting uh, the system safety activity with a robust system safety program plan, as mentioned earlier. And as Sonia pointed out, key performance indicators is a good place uh, to start the practice. You never wanna be compared unfavorably to your competition when it comes to safety. And uh, as I said last time in the last podcast, I would like to thank you, Bill, for giving us this great opportunity to introduce to listeners the system safety engineering discipline and look forward to constructive comments from your listeners. And as I said last time, I'll continue to repeat, safety is everyone's business. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tony. You're very welcome. Uh, Sonia, bring us home on system safety. Sure. So in closing, uh, we invite the listeners of this series to reach out to us with your thoughts. Uh, we'd love to hear from you as we evolve through system safety and the next generation of railroading together. And as I always say, these are really exciting times to be a railroader. Safety is everyone's business. And have a safe day. Mm -hmm.